0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Fremont, California, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Fremont, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes. Not all of them specific to Fremont. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am your host, James Orr, and today we're doing another deal analysis class. So in the previous class, I believe we did a 20% down rental property, non-owner occupant purchase, where we analyzed the deal and I walked you through basically how to enter all the inputs on the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet. And then I walked you through how to determine whether or not this is a good enough deal for you by walking through some of the numbers, showed you some stuff about the overrides, But today we're going to do something slightly different. Today we're going to do a 5% down nomad property where you're buying the property, you're moving into the property, you're living there for at least a year, and then you're converting it to a rental. And so there's a couple of different things that happen when we're talking about analyzing a nomad property that are different than when we analyze just a traditional 20% down sort of purchase. The first thing you might realize is, hey, look, we're not renting the property in the first year. So how do we deal with that in the spreadsheet? Well, the way that we deal with it is we pretend that the deal analysis we're doing is for the first year, and we make a decision based on that. And we look at it as if we could rent it in the first year, even though because we're moving into the property, because by getting the owner-occupant, the lower owner-occupant interest rate, and the lower down payment owner-occupant loan, we cannot not move into the property. We cannot rent it out completely to tenants. Could we house hack and get roommates? Sure. And if you're buying like a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex, could you go and analyze this deal as if you were living in one of the units and then you were renting out the other ones? Sure. But even when we do those, a lot of times we're analyzing the deal at full capacity. When we finally move out of the duplex, triplex, or fourplex, we're going to analyze this if we have the thing completely rented to determine what the investment will look like once we move out. So, With that being said, how else is analyzing a 5% down Nomad deal different? Well, one of the things that I'd like to talk about is we analyze the deal, not by putting the 5% down and the PMI and all that other stuff that we've got going on when we're buying a property. What we tend to do is we tend to analyze the deal as if we put 20% or 25% down and see if this would have been a good investment property that we would have bought otherwise. Then once we've done that, We go back in and we change the down payment, we change the uh, PMI type stuff in there, and we look at it and say, can I handle the additional lower cash flow, or in in many cases, negative cash flow, by only putting 5% down and having PMI on this property? And so that's what we're going to do to start with. We're going to analyze this property as if we put 20% down, and then we're going to come back and we're going to look at it when we put 5% down and see how things change, okay? So... This is a 5% down nomad property. um, And I'm in the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet. The property is going to be a $400,000 property and we're going to buy it for what it's worth. We're not paying a premium. We're not paying above asking price. We're not getting it at a discount. Now, uh, you know, I'm adding software to basically do the analysis. You'll be able to see a version of the spreadsheet for buying a Nomad property um, for each individual city. I'm going to publish this to the podcast and you'll be able to go and look at your city with your city's numbers and do the analysis. Realize that the spreadsheet I'm doing is generic. I'm going to walk you through the concepts, but I will add a link in the show notes that will walk you through the actual analysis using numbers from your city in the podcast because we've got the city podcast that we're doing analysis for and I have the ability to go do that. I'm just writing the software so that it displays it just like the spreadsheet on the screen. It'll be like a web version of the spreadsheet so that you can go and see that. So go ahead and look in the show notes to kind of see the numbers for your city or follow along on the audio for now. Okay, so AirVU buying it for 400 um, and it is worth 400 We cannot get the seller in this case to give us any seller concession. So we're unable to get the seller to contribute any money toward our closing costs. So we have zero in there. Now, remember before I told you, even though we plan on buying this as a 5% down nomad owner-occupant property where we're going to move into the property, live there for a year, and then convert it to a rental sometime after a year, for now, I'm going to assume that we're putting 20% down, and I'm going to run the numbers as if it's 20% down so that we can see what the property would look like had we bought this as an investment property. And really, that's just to kind of you know check us to make sure that would this be a property that we would even consider buying as a rental or how bad is it? And then when we switch over to 5% down, we could see just how much worse it is when we put only put 5% down. Okay. Because tends what tends to happen is the numbers tend to get a little bit worse when we put less down in terms of like cash flow and stuff like that. Okay. So 20% down there. I'm also going to assume for a moment that we're only going to pay the 1% approximate in closing costs in order to close this. So since it's a $400,000 property, we're saying it's about $4,000 in closing costs. However, once I go and I switch this over to 5% down, or maybe even before I do that, I will show you what buying down the interest rate looks like so that you can see the impact of that. And I think that for a lot of folks, if they have the extra money, that is a viable solution to improve cash flow. Remember, we talked about the 88 strategies we have to improve cash flow. One of those strategies was to actually buy down the interest rate. And so I'll show you how those numbers impact things and how it impacts the total cumulative negative cash flow we might have, the total amount we have invested, and then our returns. Okay. So for now, we're gonna use 1% closing costs. We're not gonna buy down the rate. Um, you know, when you buy a property, almost every property you buy is gonna have something that needs to be fixed before it is ready to rent. In this particular case, I said that the property is in really good shape, and uh, a couple of really small things came up on the inspection report, and we are estimating that those are going to cost about $3,000 total for us to go and do. So we're going to put $3,000 total in rent-ready costs in the field here. Now, the spreadsheet will automatically calculate how much cumulative negative cash flow you have when you buy this property. And this field isn't really correct until we get down and we update the rents and the other numbers like the interest rate and stuff like that. But it will tell you how much cumulative negative cash flow you have. So how much negative cash flow you have in the first year, plus how much negative cash flow you have in the second year, plus how much you have in the third year until you have no negative cash flow. And that's because the reason why it eventually goes away is usually when we're modeling this stuff, rents are going to increase slowly over time, you know. One, two, three, four 4% a year, whatever you're using for your kind of rent depreciation rate. And your taxes and insurance are gonna usually go up a little bit, but your mortgage payment on your property is usually fixed such that the more time that goes by, the bigger the difference between what your income is on the property, that rent that's going up a little bit each year, and the expenses you have on your property, because a large percentage of those are fixed. That mortgage, principal, interest, part of the payment becomes fixed. And so the cash flow tends to increase in your rental property over time, such that if you had negative cash flow, eventually that negative cash flow goes away. And so we add up the cumulative negative cash flow you have on this property until your cash flow becomes positive, and at which point you don't need to worry about it anymore. But what we do is we use that number as part of what you really should set aside when you invest in the property and you determine uh, how much you need to set aside in order to make that investment prudently. So not only do you need your down payment, not only do you need your closing costs, not only do you need reserves on your property, but in addition to that, in order to make your investment conservative and prudent to make it, then you should also set aside the cumulative negative cash flow that you have on the property. That way you have it and when you have the negative cash flow with each month or each year, you could just pull from that account knowing that you decided to have negative cash flow instead of putting more down. Because you could have put more down and got rid of this, right? If we had put 25% down, well, we still have three. We still have $3,000 negative cash flow instead of the 10000 If we put 30% down, you'd have 20, $222. If you put 31% down, you wouldn't have had any negative cash flow at all. So what we're saying is, look, if we had put 20% down, I think we had $10,000 negative cash flow. Or we could put down a lot more. So the difference would be we could put down $80,000 as a 20% down payment, or we could put down $124,000, $44,000 more, and not have the negative cash flow. So the question for you then becomes, and this is sort of like a, a question to think about for yourself: do you wanna put $10,236 aside as the cumulative negative cash flow that you know you're gonna to need to pay on this property? until the cash flow is likely to go positive. It's possible your rents don't go up as fast. It's possible your expenses go up a little bit faster with inflation or something like that. But this is a good estimate of how much negative cash flow you're likely to have in this property. Could you put the $10,236 aside or would you rather put $44,000 more down? $10,000, $44,000. Which would you rather do? And that's the question, right? Because the negative cash flow is really a deferred down payment. If you had put more down, you wouldn't have it. But in this case, we're choosing to put less down, and we're choosing to accept this negative cash flow. And you'll see that comes up again when we put the 5% down, because when you put less down, than 20%, it becomes even more negative. Okay. Okay. For now though, I'm going to just kind of keep this here because it's actually technically not this negative. We'll see, you'll see here in a second. Then we'll, then this shows you like the total amount you have invested, the closing costs plus the down payments, plus this cumulative negative cash flow plus the rent ready cost in order to purchase this property. It shows you that you'll need to have about $97,000 or so to do that. Uh, calculates that you're doing a $320,000 loan buying a $400,000 property. And we're using the 20% down for now. Uh, Interest rates right now for about 20% down are somewhere in the 7% range. You can go call your lender and get that rate. We have a whole class on how to do that. And then the term, we're doing a 30-year loan, 360 months. For now, because we're putting 20% down, we don't have any PMI. So I'm going to put zero for PMI. When we put 5% down, I will change this and I'll put in a number for private mortgage insurance. Remember, private mortgage insurance is insurance that you pay to protect the lender in case you default because you put less than 20% down. If you had put 20% down, they wouldn't ask you for it. Okay. But because we're putting less than 20% down, you've got that. And then PMI would drop off when the loan to value became 80%. Now, monthly rent. So the monthly rent of this property is 2850. So we put that in there. Now you can see that because it's 2850, the cash flow on the property is slightly positive, and we no longer have any cumulative negative cash flow. So, you know, I'll, I'll go through these other expenses, but the question I'm going to ask you is. Look, this is a property that if you put twenty percent down, it has the tiniest bit of cash flow. And in some markets, that's what we're looking at. That's the reality of our current marketplace. Where in some properties, in some markets, where you put twenty percent down to buy an investment property, and you're lucky to be break even at this point, right? That's what happens when prices go up a lot, interest rates go up a lot, and rents go up, but not quite as much as the property prices and the rents and the uh, and the rents have gone up. So. In some markets, that's what you're seeing. Other markets, you're like, James, this is crazy. You know, putting 20% down not making any cash flow. You're talking, you're you're crazy talk there. You know, I'm always making cash flow, even in my market, even in our current conditions. Yeah, some markets, you totally can do that. In other markets, you're going to be way negative even with this, right? Even putting 20% down, okay? So each market's a little bit different. Go check the show notes. I'll link directly to your deal analysis. You'll be able to go look at that. All right, if we had any other income, we'd put that here. The vacancy rate, we're... uh, we're starting 60 to 90 days before the current tenant moves out of the property. And so our vacancy rate is gonna be about 3%. So we're gonna test the market. We're gonna start a little bit high on rent and we're gonna bring rent down very aggressively until we're able to fill the property before the lease on the previous tenant expires. We're gonna have everything lined up, ready to go. So the vacancy rate is really those unusual situations where you have an eviction or something like that going on. Property taxes, in this case, it's 0.56%. Um, so we've got that calculated there. Property insurance about $1,400 a year. Um, and I have a property about this value. So those are about right. Um, $350 for HOA per year. And then yeah, uh, the tenants paying all the utilities, so you're not paying any of those. And there's no other expenses. You're not paying for snow removal or mowing the lawn or anything like that. This is just a, rate, a straight up single family home where the tenant is paying for all the expenses to do that. Um, I've set 10% of the gross rent set aside for maintenance on the property. I'm assuming that you're not, you're including the CapEx in the maintenance. And so we set aside zero extra dollars for CapEx. This is probably not reality. You probably should be setting aside additional money for CapEx on your property. And so you probably should use the CapEx spreadsheet that we have to estimate what your capital expenses are going to be based on the property and when you bought it and how old everything else is. That's what that advanced CapEx spreadsheet does for you. And I've assumed that you're self-managing the property. If you had a property manager here, it'd be negative, you know, significantly negative. In this case, I'm assuming that you're managing it yourself. Then we estimate the uh, percentage of the purchase price. That is the land value so that we can then calculate what percentage, what what value of the property is your building value. That way we could use the property type, which is residential in this case, uh, to determine what your cash flow from depreciation is, your, your tax benefits from owning this property, your depreciation benefits. So we can calculate a cash flow from that using your effective income tax rate. Okay, And so we have all that in there. Now, now that you've got all the numbers in there for a 20% down payment, we're looking at this and we're saying, look, you know, if I were going to go buy an investment property, if I had 20% down and I wanted to go do this, would I buy this one as a rental? Now, there's all these trade-offs you're making when you're doing Nomad, right? Sometimes we could find an amazing deal, but it's not one that we would be willing to move into and live there for a year or more. So you could, maybe could, go find a property in a I don't know, like a rougher neighborhood or a better cash-flowing neighborhood, a neighborhood that is not one that you would be willing to move in with your you and your family for a year or more, and you could get improved numbers. But because we're doing nomad, and maybe this isn't a nice as nice of a property as you would like to ideally live in with your family, but it's sort of a compromise between the nice, really nice properties that you would love to live in with your family versus the probably rougher neighborhood, rougher property that you would buy as an investment property. And because we're trying to merge these strategies of you're living in a property for a year and then you're converting it to a rental, we're sort of meeting in the middle. We don't want to go buy a property that would not make a good rental just because you know, it's a nomad property. Nor do we want to go buy a property that's so rough that we we're, we're afraid to live in the property. You don't want to do that. You probably don't want to rent that to someone either. But the idea is, you want to kind of like hybrid these. And so, a lot of times, we're looking at this property and we're making compromises. So we're just looking at this. and We're saying, look, should, should would I go buy this property? Well, it's got you know twenty one dollars a month in cash flow. It's about break even. We got about $206 a month in cash flow from depreciation. Those are the tax benefits of owning the property that look like cash flow. We get those in the form of either end-of-year tax return rebate, or we can adjust our exemptions on our actual paycheck, Receive pay less in taxes with each paycheck that we make, and actually receive money back so that we could use that to cover some negative cash flow uh, with money that we don't have to pay in on taxes from the paycheck from our regular job. Okay, so you can go and look at that. The total amount of true cash flow, which is really just the sum of this monthly cash flow and the cash flow from depreciation is $227 a month. Okay, then we walk through. We can see all the returns for whether you're doing the return in dollars from each of the four areas, from appreciation, from cash flow, from debt pay down, from cash flow, from depreciation, the tax benefits, in other words. And it sums all these ups and tells you about 18. You're making about $18,000 a year. The total return on investment is about 20.66% if we ignore reserves. This is like, remember, I talked to you in the last class. This is the number that most people, and I'm using this in quotes, they lie about. They tell people that this is their return, but in reality, it's not their return. We really do need to take into account that we had to set aside reserves in order to make this investment. So the reserves need to count in both the amount of money we're making, because you make a little bit of money on your reserves if you set it aside and you're investing it, and also, The uh, reserves need to go in the denominator when we calculate your return on investment. So the RID plus R6 is the return in dollars quadrant plus six months of reserves, R6. Okay, so that tells you how much you'd be making in total dollars if you had six months of reserves, if you set aside six months of reserves. This one tells you return in dollars quadrant plus R12, which is 12 months of reserves you set aside. And you can see with the six months of reserves, you're making about $18,304. So a little bit of that money is coming from the return on reserves. And then if you put aside 12 months of reserves, it's $20,608. So you could see the total amount increase a little bit more to account for the return you're earning on the reserves. Now. When we look at the dollar amounts, either the 17,974, the 18,304, the 20,608, the returns we're getting with no reserves, six months reserves, and 12 months reserves, and we divide by how much we had to invest in order to you know, buy this property, you can now see the total return on investment when you don't have reserves, when you have six months reserves, and when you have 12 months reserves. So when you don't have any reserves, it's 2066 When you have six months of reserves, it's 17.69, and if you have 12 months of reserves, it's 17.18, and you can get a feel for the overall returns you're seeing when you're doing this, so you're looking at this property, and you're saying to yourself, okay, would I buy this if I had 20% down, and you've analyzed all the deals in your marketplace, and the ones that you would also be willing to move into, which is sort of the criteria for doing Nomad, you're like, yes, yes. This is the best deal that I can find in my marketplace right now with the current market conditions and the current interest rate. And so this is the best that you found. That's the sort of criteria that we have. And it's available. I think I might pursue this. Okay. Now that you've decided that this looks like a good enough deal. It's the best one you've you've seen. It's the one you're really going to pursue. Now we go and we look at putting 5% down and we determine, are we willing to stomach this extra negative cash flow? Are we willing to deal with this? Okay, so now we're going to go through, we're going to make some adjustments. Price is the same, purchase price is the same, still not getting any seller concessions from the seller. However, we're not putting 20% down anymore, we're putting 5% down, okay? So that changes it. Before we were at $80,000 in down payment, now we're only having to come up with $20,000 in down payment. Still have 1% in closing costs, about $4,000. Still have that $3,000 in rent-ready costs because we're trying to do the uh, get the property ready to rent, has some repairs it needs to get done. Now our cumulative negative cash flow before it was, um, before it was I don't know ten. Oh, actually it was zero when we put twenty percent down to we increased the rent. But when we had the uh, the rent lower, it was ten thousand dollars, which really isn't relevant here. But in in this case, it's fifteen thousand dollars negative, right? If we had put, let's see where to go when it goes away. We had put sixteen percent down. Let's see seventeen percent, eighteen percent, nineteen percent. Oh, so it's it's literally at 20% is when it goes away. So if we had put 20% down, we'd put $80,000 down. We wouldn't have any negative cash flow. But in this case, we have $15,000 in negative cash flow. So this becomes the question of, would you rather put $80,000 down and have, not have no negative, and have no negative cash flow, or would you rather put $20,000 down and $15,151 in negative cash flow on a property. So it becomes, would you rather have $35,000 invested into the deal, 20 upfront and $15,000 set, set aside an account to take care of negative cash flow, or would you rather come up with $45,000 more and not have negative cash flow? That is the question as of right now. And so that's that's part of the decision. Now, cash flow is ugly. You know, in the first year, it looks like negative 378 per month. That's ugly. And even when we take into account the cash flow from depreciation, we're still negative 172 per month. So it's still like we need to deal with that. Now, that's only in the first year. In the second year, you go look at overrides. So you look at this uh, cumulative negative cash flow here. Everything is overridable. That's a word. And so let's look at cumulative negative cash flow. So in the first year, it's about $4,500 in negative cash flow. In the next year, it's about $3,700. In the year after that, it's about $3,000, then about $2,100 and change, then about $1,300, then about $430. By the time you get to year seven, there's no negative cash flow. And this sums up to be $15,151 total. Okay? And so we can go look at that as to how negative cash flow is going to be. And that's just rents going up a little bit, 3% per year. Might rents not go up 3% per year? Absolutely. But we're modeling it like that. And I think this is reasonable. It's a reasonable assumption and much more conservative than not setting aside this number to have cumulative negative cash flow. Okay, so that's why we're doing it this way. So before, when we had 20% down, our total amount that we invested in the deal was $87,000. Now that we're putting 5% down, the total amount we have invested is $42,000, which includes setting aside that money for negative cash flow. So it's less than half, okay, by putting the 5% down, if you think about that way, all right? So the mortgage amount now, because we're putting 5% down, is 380. Now, the mortgage interest rate is not 7% anymore. We're doing owner-occupant, and it's probably in that 6.75 to 6.875 range um, for doing the owner-occupant right now with that. And we've got PMI. And PMI right now, oops. 0.38, 0.38, 0.2038, there we go. So you call up your lender and you'd find out from them how much private mortgage insurance is gonna be. Or we just did a class yesterday on all the factors that go into calculating what PMI is. And then we're gonna do a class, I think next week or the week after that on how to actually calculate it using a rate sheet from a private mortgage insurance company. But I went and I looked it up before class today. It's 0.38 for someone with really good credit uh, doing a 5% down loan. Um, you know, solo. So 0.38% is what we use for that. So it's about $120 a month in negative cash flow on this thing. So now our negative cash flow is a little bit higher than it was before because we changed the interest rate and now we have this PMI. And PMI is a factor in calculating the thing. So these numbers are now, I think before it's like 15,000. Now it's like $18,636. Or if you look over here, negative $467 a month or negative $261 if we take into account the depreciation, cash flow from depreciation, okay? So we looked at these numbers and we saw all of these things here. Now realize there are several ways to pay PMI, right? We chose in this particular case to pay PMI monthly. We could have said to the lender, hey, Mr. Lender, Mrs. Lender, instead of you actually um, giving me a monthly rate, why don't you raise the interest rate on the overall mortgage, give me a credit, that you would then use in order to pay the PMI upfront because you could pay it upfront as one big lump sum as well, okay? And they may choose to do that and they say, okay, well, if you do it that way, interest rates are gonna be you know 7.125 and you won't have this 0.38 at all, it'll be zero. And then you go look at that and you're like, well, that's worse. And this interest rate lasts forever. The PMI only lasts until I get to 80% loan to value and then it drops off. So actually, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna go back to the way we had it before, 6.875 and 0.38. Or you could go to them and say, hey, can I pay uh, PMI in one upfront lump sum? Get rid of this. Have it go to zero. And you come up here in closing costs. And let's say it's, uh, I don't know, let's say it's you know another 1.5%. So 2.5% total in closing costs. And then you can get rid of that. And then your cumulative negative cash flow is only 12860 for the entire time. Okay? And that's that's because you chose to pay a little bit more in closing costs here instead. All right. So you have to go evaluate which of these three you want to do: pay upfront in one lump sum, pay monthly, or have the lender raise the interest rate, and you could actually take it in the interest rate, so it'll impact your cash flow, um, but it won't actually come out as a separate PMI payment. Um, we will we do we have an entire class we're planning on doing on that, but for now I'm going to go back and do oops, one, two, three, eight. There we go. Okay. Now, when you go look at this, you're like, hey, look, you know, my, my cash flow is more negative. My total true cash flow is negative two, negative 261. Um, but a lot of these other numbers, they stayed the same. And when we look at return on investment, they actually improved. You know, we now have a 12, 28.1% overall return on investment using the one where we don't take into account reserves, the lie we tell at cocktail parties. Uh, we have about 20% here for this one and about 18.87 total for when we have 12 months of reserves. So your, your return on investment actually went up because you put less down, 5% down, and you have less invested in the deal. And a lot of these other returns, like your appreciation return is uh, is the same and your uh, depreciation return in dollars is the same. Your your cash flow, your cash um, debt pay down return actually gone up a little bit because you're paying down more of the loan, the interest rate's a little bit lower uh, and your cash flow is much more negative. So those are how those changed if you want to look at them. So you have to decide, can I stomach... You know, negative $261 a month in negative true cash flow. That's the cash flow after we take into account the depreciation benefit. And then you have to decide, am I willing to do that? You know, if I put 20% down, I'd be about break even. Now I'm negative 467. And I had to set aside this $18,636 in order to handle all of that negative cash flow for the entire time. You have to decide if you're willing to do that or one of the other things you could do is you can come in here and you can say, look, I'm going to actually buy down my interest rate. I'm going to come up with 4% more here. Whoops. 3% more in closing costs. I'm going to buy down my interest rate. And I checked before the, um, the webinar here. And for three points, you could buy down your interest rates for a, a 5% down owner-occupant loan to 5.625. Still got PMI but you're basically able to do that. Well, that changes your negative cash flow to be negative 158. So if you come up with 3% more down to buy down your mortgage interest rate, that changes the amount of cumulative negative cash flow you need to set aside to only $3,341 and your negative cash flow per month is only negative $158 a month because you put that more down. And the total amount you have invested is this 42,341 so it's similar to the amounts you had to set aside for this cumulative negative cash flow, but now you're choosing to take that money and you're choosing to invest it in buying down the interest rate. And that significantly improves your overall returns. You know, the dollar amounts of returns get a little bit better, but look at the number for your return on investment. It went from that, I think we were at, tw- I mean, I should just go do this. It's 1%, 6.875, I think is where we were at for that. Yeah, so it was like 28%. And now, when we go and we do this, it's 41.52% return on investment. It's 29.95 if you look at your return, including six months of reserves, and 26.33 if you look at your return, uh, including 12 months of reserves. So the return on investment that you're getting is amazing. If you're willing to put 5% down, move into the property, Put up 1% for closing costs and buy down the rate 3%. Um, and you have $3,000 in rent ready costs. The total amount you'd have to invest in order to do this deal is about $42,341. And that includes setting aside some money for that cumulative negative cash flow, plus you'll need reserves in addition to this. But you have four, $400,000 property. So you're putting down you know, about uh, a little less than 11% of the total amount total, including rent ready costs and your negative cash flow and your closing costs and everything else. Is that bad? It's up to you to decide that. You need to determine whether that's worthwhile for you or not. Okay? And so you need to go look at these and determine, hey, look, is it worth me coming up with this $42,000 in order to do these types of numbers on that dollar amount? I'm getting a 41% return on that money in the first year. Okay? And then you can go evaluate how it looks over time and all your other stuff like your equity and your cost to access your equity and return on true net equity. And you can look at your, your cap rate on this property or your cash on cash return. You know, basically the first three years you have negative cash on cash return. Then in year four, it bumps up and you're now at 4.58%. And you can kind of look at all those different things and evaluate whether or not it makes sense for you to do it. And in fact, what's interesting about this one, because you have negative $158 a month in cash flow, but you have $206 a month in this cash flow from depreciation technically when you combine the cash flow you're getting from the tax benefits and the cash flow you're getting the negative cash flow you're getting by buying the property those two combined are positive so it's not even really negative if you really think about it in terms of negative cash flow plus the tax benefits you're getting by owning that property it's actually slightly positive it's $48 a month positive which is interesting you know I don't know what the rate is, I didn't look it up for doing, you know, buying it down only two points, but let's say that's, you know, somewhere between, let's say that's, uh, you know, 6% even. You do that, so it's a little bit more negative. Returns are still pretty good, but they actually went down a little bit, okay? So you can go evaluate that and see where you should buy stuff down. We have an entire class on buying down your interest rate. We have a totally separate spreadsheet for looking at where you should buy it down to and where it's optimal and how much it costs to do all that. But realize that really what you'll want to do once you get the spreadsheet you figured out what you think is optimal is run the numbers go put it in here and see how that impacts your cash flow your negative cash flow how much cumulative negative cash flow you're going to have and how long that'll last for and then how your return in dollars looks in years one and year one for you know appreciation cash flow um, debt pay down cash flow depreciation and your reserves because you want to look at that you should need to put reserves in there and then your return on investment for Year one or year two, you can go look at all the different years and the overrides. So you can go look at your overall return on investment. Here's the returns in dollars for each of the years all the way through to year 40, if you want to look at it that way. And then you can look at also your return on uh, equity quadrants after the first year. Because after the first year, we really want to know what the return you're earning on equity is, not necessarily the return you're earning on the amount you had to invest. All right. So. That's all I got for you. Hopefully this was helpful in understanding how to analyze a 5% down deal. And, you know, in some markets, these numbers are ugly, right? I mean, if if this property was, you know, $500,000, which is probably closer to what we would see in my current marketplace, you know, these are much uglier. Yeah, I mean, you're at like, almost negative $900 a month, negative $639 after taking into account the cash flow from depreciation. Um, But, you know, you still got, you know, decent returns here. This is probably, you know, what's this uh, return? Let me go look over here. You know, it's, um, the return uh, from equity is 28.73. So, I don't know; those numbers still look pretty good when you kind of look at it that way. But it's really ugly. You need to have this negative cash flow side, and look at this. I mean, basically, you're buying a five hundred thousand dollar property. You're going to put it, when you when you figure out like the total amount you did, you almost have to put aside, um, you know, twenty percent of the property with all the negative cash flow you've got. So you're you're putting down, you know, almost like a twenty percent down payment to do it. You yeah. know that's that's pretty ugly. If you had put 20% down, go back to one percent closing cost, go back up to seven percent for the loan amount. Yeah, you are almost coming in one hundred and thirty-nine thousand dollars because you have thirty-one thousand dollars, even with twenty percent down to get negative cash flow. So it can get really ugly in other markets when you're trying to do this. You know, you may have to go put, you know, whatever it is, 31% down or 32% down in order to get to the point where you don't have negative cash flow. Yeah, a lot. Yes, probably 38 or 39. Yep. So a lot of negative cash flow, and that takes a lot to overcome. A lot of deferred down payment from not putting enough down. All right, so that's all I got for you. Hopefully you enjoyed this deal analysis and seeing how it changes when you're analyzing just a regular 20% down deal to now when we're doing 5% down deals. We will continue in the series of analyzing different types of deals. I think I want to do... um, I don't know if we're going to do free and clear next, buying a property where you're buying it all cash and show you how that looks. We're buying a property that's new construction and how some of those things are different. I'm not sure which one I'm going to do next, but I plan to do a whole series of these and cover a wide range of situations so that you can see how we might analyze these different deals. Um, That's all I got for you. I hope everyone has a great day. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates.